This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The U.S. missile strikes in Syria last week gave some hope to Denver poet and activist Amal Kassir. She's lost dozens of family members in the war, including several who were killed just days earlier from Syrian bombs on the outskirts of Damascus. Kassir talked about it at a performance of her poetry last week. First, we lost one cousin. Then we lost another. And then they pulled my father's sister from the rubble and she was alive. And so we said, Alhamdulillah only to find out moments later that my father's sister had been killed. We lost 10 members of our family yesterday. We lost 10 people yesterday, all in just one bombing. Amal Kassir is in our studio now. Welcome back to Colorado Matters. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm sorry for your loss. Um, Your father woke you and your brother early morning last Tuesday with updates from Syria. What was happening? Well, there had been a bombardment um, over the course of two days. 120 bombs had fallen in the outskirts of Damascus. Uh, at this point, my family was in the basement. And the correct move during these times. My father said they were sitting by the pillars, you know, the structure of the building to stay protected. But they were hit. And um, I, I, I said 10 in that video, but I found out yesterday that one of my cousins was also pregnant. So within that number, there were two babies in the womb, so 11 people total. And to be clear, your family wasn't killed in the apparent chemical weapons attack last week, correct? No, they were in a much more south southern region then. Yeah. The, the day after you, you learned about your family, how did you hear that they were bombed? How did you find out about this? All through WhatsApp. WhatsApp has been the primary source of, con- of connection with, with my family in Syria, um, as well as the family that's outside of Syria. Mm. So we were receiving those updates actively as they were happening. Um, well, you know, when they pull one body out of the rubble, my aunt in Syria would somehow know through text message um, telling us this person has passed away. This person has passed away. Mm. Basima is dead. You know, they're that short of messages. It's very short. And- oh, yeah. The, the message that said my father's sister had died was just, Basima's Basima martyred. Mm. Two words. And, and that got my dad out of his chair so quick. Got the tears running for sure. But we weren't sure for 20 minutes because originally she was alive when they pulled her out. So my, my dad did not accept it immediately until we knew for a fact you performed in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center the day after you learned about your family. The clip was uh, we played in the beginning is from that appearance. You said on stage that you considered not going. Why did you decide to go in the end? We're in the seventh year of the Syrian revolution, and I, it would be incorrect to say that we didn't think this would happen eventually. We, we couldn't say that we were going to be protected from the risk of our own family getting these bombs. I, this is the first sibling of my father who's passed away in, in this. And it was overwhelming, but I had to go. I had to go. And I had to tell everybody what happened. And it might be a little selfish to say that I didn't want to hold that heartbreak all by myself. You're, you're born in the U.S., your family owns a Syrian restaurant in the Denver area, the Damascus Grill. You've also, though, lived in Syria. What's it like to be here and hear only what's happening through updates every second as they come in? 
The only thing that we can offer to the people is our is our eyes, our ears, and our broken hearts. I have done work, you know, humanitarian aid, sending containers full of diapers and things over there, but there is only so much that a person can can do and feel like they're making a difference. It's a strange phenomenon. Um, the One of my cousins who died, Salam, I found out she was pregnant yesterday, as well as holding her two-year-old baby. She was the last person in Syria who gave me a hug before I left it the last time. I believe 2007 was the year. And how symbolic her name means peace. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm a poet, so I'm lucky to be able to take all of this tragedy and find some way to get the wisdom out of it and to share it. But there are a lot of people who struggle with not knowing how to help their families back home. Before this attack, you had already lost more than 30 family members, and you haven't been able to go back, like you've said, to Syria since you left in 2007, that last final hug. You've said your family are revolutionaries, that you and your father are wanted. What has that been like these last few years, experiencing all this loss from afar, but also that that fear that you, you must be having? You know... I, I say this um, with a lot, uh, with a lot of contemplation behind it. But the Assad regime is a cowardice regime, and and lies are their their biggest success. We are doing the right thing because we are telling the truth. We are telling the truth, no matter how scary it is. I know that I am not doing anything wrong or anything harmful because this is what's happening and there are journalists coming out from places like Canada denying everything denying the corpses denying the massacres but we know this is happening we we see this not not only as an attempt for us to try to make meaning of this but this is a responsibility we are in a nation where we have the opportunity to speak to journalists to spread our news to not get our throats cut because of because of what we say and the syrian government um ibrahim qashush he he was a poet just like me he was a singer he he wrote one of the main revolution songs that people were were dancing in the streets with and the Syrian government literally ripped out his throat, which shows the value of what my father and I are doing simply by spreading information. Now, you've protested against President Trump uh, on the refugee order, among other things. And uh, he he uh, approved this bombing uh, last week. How do you feel about his choice to use military action against Syrian forces uh, saying what you just said? I would say... President Trump is not necessarily included in why this could be considered a good thing. I'm hesitant to use that word because bombs are never going to be better. But the Assad regime hopefully is very, very afraid at the fact that President Trump, the first person since the start, who has actually made an attempt against Assad himself. And the Assad government has continued, though, to bomb Syrians after the U.S. missile attack. Definitely. Significantly less so within the first 24 hours. So at least there was that. But I can't, I, I don't, I don't like politics for this reason. I hate politics. Well, your poetry. This yeah. is what you do. I'd always say my politics is human rights. 
And so, so there's not a lot to be worried about. But the Syrian people, a lot of them are celebrating, not celebrating President Trump, but celebrating the fact that the Assad regime has a little bit of a, a worry, hopefully, in their hearts. You're, you're writing a book of poetry about Syria and your life. And you've said after last week's attacks, you now know the ending of your book. Why is that? Well, as I mentioned, Salam, my cousin, was the last person to have hugged me before I left. And her name means peace, and she was killed. How symbolic is that? It's been hard to get this book out because last time I thought I was ready, that Aylan Kurdi had washed up on the shores um, of Turkey and became sort of a, symbo- a symbol, symbol this was of that, the, the child that exactly, washed up. Exactly, a symbol shores. of the refugee crisis. And, and the chemical attacks had been prior, and, and the sieges and the bombings and the starvation. But now that it's my family and Salam has died, Allah, God rest her soul, I think that I'm ready to. I think I'm ready to conclude what this war has truly, truly done. Amal, thanks so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to my story. Everyone who's listening, send a prayer because we believe that they're heard. Amal Kassir is a Syrian-American poet and activist in Denver. She lost 11 family members last week in Syria's government bombings. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Many people with autism have a hard time expressing themselves, and that makes it tough to tell people what it's like to have the condition. But 19-year-old Coloradan Andy Kutkowski gives his take in a short film he made at the Youth Documentary Academy in Colorado Springs, where he lives. I'm making this documentary because growing up, I didn't personally have much friends because they didn't understand my behaviors. So um, it really made me sad that a lot of people didn't care. Andy and his mother, Carrie, join my colleague, Andrea Dukakis, to talk about the film. Andy, Carrie, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you so much, Andrea. This is an awesome experience. Well, I'm happy you're here. And Andy, you set out to make this documentary to explain autism to others. And you talk about your own experience. We hear your family's perspective, too. What do people who haven't experienced autism up close have a hard time understanding about it? So basically, like, 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 what do people like don't understand about autism? Yeah, well, what do you think um, they aren't prepared for? Well, um, these kids have certain behaviors that people do not understand. So, like, for example, I can share some of mine. Um, the issue with noise, so, 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 such as like the fire alarms going off, or even like the band playing in in the school, like. Gym such such such, um, such like the middle the, the middle school gym or the high school mm-hmm. gym, um, even e- even people like telling someone to honk their horns for fun, <laughs> um, so um, issue issues with noise like ca- like cause autism people to shut down because they feel like they don't feel safe around a- around that noise. So like such as me, I broke down and cried, and people did not understand knew or knew how to help. So they, people might look at you and, and not really understand. Had they known more about autism, they might be more understanding about your behaviors. Exactly. If they if they knew a little more about autism and like and like what the issues were or even like the definition of it, then they would say, Oh, hey, I know how to 
help this guy now and I know I know the steps I can I can ask some questions like it do you feel safe here can I can I provide you somewhere else to make you feel more comfortable or right and Carrie when did you start to notice signs that Andy might have autism I didn't really notice them myself it took um he was, he was my firstborn so of course they're perfect um it took others demonstrating to me when Andy's behavior was not like the other children. And that's when I realized, I'm going to go prove him wrong. So we took him up to Children's Medical Center to have him diagnosed. And when it came back that um, with the diagnosis and that he needed some significant help with some therapies, then that's, that's when we, we went down a different path to try and help him do what he could to survive. Had it been your second child, you might have known more. Exactly. Yeah. Andy, this theme of you having a tough time connecting with others comes up several times in the film. Here's your 13-year-old sister, Holly, and then your mom talking about it. Some things I'm worried about for you is like your friends, because you don't really have any You sat alone every day at school, at lunch, since eighth grade all the way through senior. Andy, when you hear your family talking about you not having friends, not making connections, what's your reaction to hearing that? It's it's it, it's so amazing that I'm like, wow, it's that rough time. I, did, I didn't realize it from that angle that... Wow, I didn't. I I can basically say um, I didn't. I I did. I didn't make any friends because I didn't know how to connect with them or ask them questions. Because um, I I I was one of those kids where I did not think friend. Um, um I sh- I, I should say ho- homework was number one for me when uh-huh. I when I was growing up, and I didn't. Th- and I was worried about making friendships because I thought that would distract me from my family time and my homework time. So I'm, You almost didn't want to make friends because you were focusing on other things. Exactly. And Carrie, what was it like as a mom to see Andy so alone? It was really hard to... I, you know, I'd ask him every day when he'd come home, so did, who'd you sit with today? Who'd you talk with today? And it was usually the teacher or I was by myself. And... Over time, it got to the point where, well, you know, if it's okay for Andy, maybe it's okay for me. So I had to turn my thoughts on how do I help him because relationships are important to be successful. So how do I turn, if friendships weren't important to Andy, how do I make him successful in life? Hmm. Mm. And, and we'll hear how, you know, Andy has developed a lot of those skills over time. But, um, Andy, you talked about uh, growing up and not liking loud noises. Um, and here's your dad describing a breakthrough you had when you went to a Huey Lewis concert. We went there in 2014, and the doctor said that you would never be able to attend a concert with loud music and with a lot of people due to the, you know, the high level of noise. But you and I went, you were successful, and we had a great time. Carrie, what was your reaction when Andy got through that concert? Oh, my gosh. It it was something that we never thought would ever happen. I remember taking him to, um, uh, not really an assembly, but it was an event at the um, academy, uh, the the concert. And And we didn't know he had this kind of issues and. He would scream in the middle of the audience, and we'd take him out and walk him down the halls and eventually took him to a psychologist or psychiatrist to help us 
figure out what was wrong. Why does my child not like music? And the doctor finally said to me, Carrie, it's okay. It's okay that your son doesn't like music. He'll get through life. He just won't, you know, be able to experience those things that you and John hold really, you know, dear to our hearts. So when he made that accomplishment, that was, yay, we did one, you know, (laughs) of all the obstacles that he faced, that was one that he could overcome and enjoy. And I notice Andy refers in the film to autism as both a condition and a disorder. And at a time when there's this heightened sensitivity to words like disorder, um, how do you guys feel about the use of that word? I, I have not taken any exception to any of the words used to describe Andy's behavior. I think the more that we use to highlight the issue, the more that we can communicate that it's really out there. And it means different things to different mm-hmm. people. Not every autistic disorder is identical to the other one. It's all, you know, based on the child's behavior and individual mm-hmm. makeup. So mm-hmm. I think the more words we use, the better we communicate. Andy, how do you feel? I would, I would feel the same way that my mom thinks. I just think like the more message you bring to autism, the more people would understand it. It's actually, to me, it's both a disorder and a condition because you're basically dealing with social problems and and stuff around you that, that really affects you in a certain way. So um, I, th- I just think explaining this more would educate the public more and they would know how to treat adults, even kids, with autism. And and you made the film before you started college. You're there now. But here's what you said then. um, It's in the film about your plans to go to the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. College is starting really soon for me. And um, I would like some positive things I would like to come out of that is if my roommate can like me and if he can appreciate the same stuff I like and if we can just just go do some certain things um, and uh, also making some friends who like the same stuff I like. You've since started school. Uh, have you been able to connect with others as you had hoped? Um, it was actually struggling than what I originally thought it was. Um, I could basically say I did reunite with an elementary school friend there, and I got her contact info. So um, I at least made that friend, I should say. Um, would you like me to come talk about my roommate issue? Okay. Uh, we all have them. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'll. Um, how, how about I say some of it, then you can explain. Okay. Some of it. How's that sound, mom? Sure. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, wait. Okay. Um, so when it com- um, so when it comes, to, so when when I worked with my, so when I moved into my room, my roommate's room, I can tell you, it was not a pleasant time. <laughs> um. So I uh, basically he did not respect my study habits. He was one of those kids who just came home and just partied all the uh, well, was just not party. He was uh he he always wanted to have fun every time he came back. So he did not respect my time studying. He always slept every time I went back because like every time I opened the room he was sleeping and I didn't and I didn't like that. Um, so I had a roommate issue and um, now I am. Now, I, I think halfway through college, I solved the issue by moving into a single, and that helped me a ton um, with, with, with the social issues. So um, I, I like it better so I can manage my own bathroom and clean, clean up after myself because I did get tired of him not cleaning up his mess. And Carrie, have you noticed uh, things are better now than they were originally? Oh, much, much better. I remember when we walked in and his roommate that he had wasn't the one that he had planned to have. And I walked in there thinking, oh, they're polar opposites. This isn't going to go well. But, oh, what an experience for Andy. So 
we were there to support him, and I kind of just wanted to see what happened. Great. Well, Carrie, Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Mm-hmm. No, you're welcome. You're welcome. 19-year-old Andy Kitkowski and his mother Carrie spoke to my colleague Andrew Dukakis. They live in Colorado Springs. Andy made a short film about living with autism at the Youth Documentary Academy. Find a link at cprnews.org. There's a new beat at NPR covering the urban-rural divide. The idea has gotten a lot of attention since the election, given the growing clout of rural voters, including here in Colorado. Reporter Kirk Sigler has stepped into this new role. Before joining NPR, he reported for public radio station KUNC in Greeley. He'll be in Colorado and Utah later this week. Kirk, welcome to the program. Hey, Nathan. Good to be here. So what exactly is the urban-rural divide, besides this new term that's being bandied about? Right. It does sound like a little bit of a sort of catchy political term that is being bandied about, like I'm standing up on some metaphorical divide (laughs) looking down on both sides, right? Um, But what it is, is sort of an advancement of a beat that NPR has covered for a number of years, um, basically rural affairs. Um, And we're sort of, I guess, maybe making it a little bit more uh, timely today. Uh, As you mentioned in your intro there, you know, you talked about the election being sort of pronouncing the urban-rural divide and the clout of the rural voters in the election. And so we had been talking about sort of resurrecting this in a, as a full-time beat, um, I'd say, last summer. Um, and it was also born out of uh, a little bit of a conversation of uh, I had been covering rural Western issues for a number of years on the national desk here at NPR, and even before that when I was in Colorado. Um, and this was sort of a way to sort of Let's get out and broaden that beat a little bit and get me out into other parts across the country. Um, I think the election itself sort of pronounced the fact that we as uh, in the mainstream media and the mainstream press uh, sort of missed this big phenomenon going on in the past few months. And I think it may be because, well, one of the reasons it may be because uh, a lot of reporters are sort of um, as a result of a number of uh, mostly financial decisions are sort of clustered on the coasts and not out as much as we'd like to be in the middle of the country. And at the same time, there's there are fewer and fewer uh, local newspaper reporters in, in communities uh, now. So this sort of all sort of converged into the need to let's get back out there right. and um, well, d- spend some more time. D- d- do you think anything then has changed since the election of President Trump? Is there, a, is there a question you're trying to address here with NPR or is it simply the media just didn't get it? Well, I think, you know, it's it's a probably a broader uh, discussion we could have about political reporting and yeah. contemporary political reporting. But I think there is a hunger to get out into communities and as reporters report on the ground and be a lot less reactive. And uh, I think we saw in, in recent elections, not just this this most recent one, you know, there tends to be a the candidates drive the narrative uh, and we cover it. I think when we're out in communities and understanding communities and profiling folks and talking to them about what they want to see, what they think the issues are, we as reporters can do what we're supposed to do, which is sort of draw these, you know, comparisons or draw these uh, attention, draw attention to some of these problems and drive the narrative ourselves and sort of lay everything out so um, the listeners and the readers can make their own informed decisions. But I, I I think that the the idea behind the getting out into rural America more is to go to places that where there is a sort of uh, I don't want to say something as deep as despair, but a profound sense of 
people in communities in certain places in rural areas feeling as though they've been overlooked or forgotten. Um, so part of this, yeah, go ahead. I, I, I want to play a short clip from a story you did in early 2015 about pot from Colorado flowing into rural western Nebraska. It's an interaction with a woman from Sedgwick in extreme eastern Colorado. Take a listen. Well, Sedgwick is small. I mean really small. Just a couple streets. Are you looking for something? You don't look like a local, so I figured I'd ask it. <laughs> this woman who's getting highlights in her hair ducks out of the salon to ask if I'm lost. Kathy doesn't want me to use her last name because this is such a small town, and it's clear she wants nothing at all to do with the dispensary. Do you get that a lot, that you don't look like a local? Does that mean there's apprehension to talk to you when you're walking in small terms? No, I like that you I like that you chose that clip. Um, we do, you know, it, I, I'm pretty used to going to small towns and, you know, everybody almost right away knows that there's a reporter in town, especially a national correspondent reporter. Um, and, you know, of course we stand out because I, I think in that case I had a, a, a rental car with um, maybe a California plate on it. And since then I learned that always get the, you know, always get a rental car with at least the home state that you're in or planning to go to. Um, so you don't, don't draw more attention to yourself. But no, I, you know, I actually, you know, I think there's this perception that, um, you know, uh, we're so polarized, of course, and, and, you know, I can give folks all kinds of statistics and back it up with how diverse our audience is, in particular in political opinions and political stripes and how middle of the road we are. But some people have their minds made up when they hear, you know, NPR is coming to town or Fox News is coming to town, what have you. Um, but, you know, I never really have too much of a difficulty getting people to open up to me. I'm used to coming to these places. I, I grew up in a rural area, so I guess that helps. But a lot of people just want to be heard. Uh, and they're, they're, it's remarkable how many people open up uh, and just are, are sort of interested or excited that, you know, people that you're there. are coming in, reporters. Are, <laughs> right. I was almost thinking that when we more full-time started reporting this beat in November that I might be met with a little cynicism like, oh, now the national media is out there. You know, now you're coming. But, I, you know, I, you know. I guess I was just sort of preparing for that, but that certainly hasn't been the case, at least so far. We've been talking about your reporting in rural America, but your bio says your beat covers the intersection between urban and rural life. Does that mean you're you're still going to do stories in large cities like L.A. where you're based? For sure. So that's sort of an interesting question because uh, maybe listeners, maybe they're not, but maybe listeners are thinking, well, how is he covering rural America from the second largest city in America? Exactly. Uh, but uh, I think it's interesting to live in a city, whether it's Denver, Salt Lake City, Atlanta, Los Angeles, and 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 be able to tra- – you know, I travel constantly. I'm uh, in a couple hours here. I'm headed to Grand Junction. Um, you know, so I'm always sort of uh, living in an urban area and traveling to the rural areas for work. And I think that brings a sort of interesting perspective to, um, you know, understand both sides. Uh, I grew up in a, a rural county in Montana um, by a fairly good-sized city in Montana, which is the liberal bubble of Montana. Mm. Uh, but the counter, uh, the county areas of Missoula, Montana, tend to be quite a bit more conservative, and you're even seeing sort of an urban-rural divide <laughs> in a largely rural red state. Uh, so I think traveling between the two can bring sort of an interesting perspective to the reporting. You are traveling to Colorado, like you say, uh, very soon, uh, Western Slope and Utah. Uh, what are you going to cover while you're out here? I was just thinking about this. Um, well, I wasn't thinking about what I was going to cover, but I was just thinking about the urban-rural divide as it sort of pertains to this story I'm about to do, which is the um, 
fight uh, over the new Bears Ears National Monument, which is in some sense a connection, uh, a, a goal by the environmental community to connect uh, the Grand Canyon with the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument and extend protections across that part of the Southwest. Um, but I'm traveling down to San Juan County, Utah, which is in many ways has a long, long history of anti-federal government sentiment. Um, the listener, your listeners may recall that a couple of years ago, there was a highly controversial ride that occurred uh, with off-road vehicles in a canyon there on Bureau of Land Management land that was uh, sensitive and had some cultural sites to it, uh, sort of a protest ride. Um, this has been sort of the hotbed of, of anti-government sentiment in Utah, or one of them, uh, anti-federal government sentiment. And here's this large national monument that has been um, enacted in the late days of the Obama administration. And uh, the story is about there's a growing pressure by all of Utah's congressional delegation, including senior Senator Orrin Hatch, to get that national monument nullified. And there's debate about whether the Trump administration could do that or if only Congress could do that. Um, so the idea is to go out onto the ground and uh, get a sense for what the, the views really are, because this is a highly politicized issue. I don't need to tell you. I know right. uh, it's a big issue in Colorado as well. But I was thinking when you're when you're in Salt Lake City, for example, there was just news uh, not too recently uh, or, or quite recently that uh, the outdoor show was pulling out of Utah as and, a result and, and of could be moving some to Colorado, possibly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when you're in Salt Lake City and you're reading that and, and understanding that issue and Salt Lake City has a rather robust environmental movement uh, headquartered there and lots of uh, outdoor retailers as well. That's a huge issue and a huge uproar. Well, when you go down to, I suspect when you go down to San Juan County, Utah, that may not be uh, such a huge uproar. And there are a lot of other views. I mean, this is a very, I guess, maybe acute example of the urban-rural divide. And people in rural Utah may take offense to the fact that they may be labeled as anti-environment when really they, they're the ones out living in the environment day to day. And some of them are concerned about more traffic coming in and uh, and, more and that's popularity exactly, and attention toward these areas. And yeah. that's exactly what you're going to be reporting on. Kirk Sigler, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here. Thanks. Kirk is NPR's new urban-rural divide reporter. He'll report in Colorado and Utah later this week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Today, we meet the person in charge of one of the country's busiest national parks, Christine Lennertz. She became the superintendent of Grand Canyon National Park in August, and she's the first woman to hold this position since Grand Canyon was established as a national park nearly 100 years ago. Lennertz grew up in Colorado and is a graduate of CU Boulder, and she speaks today at the Conference on World Affairs. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning. You succeeded uh, the former superintendent there, Dave uh, Baraga, who announced his retirement last year as he faced tough criticism about how he responded to sexual harassment complaints from female employees. How have you been addressing this at Grand Canyon in your new role? Well, we've been we've been addressing it directly. We know that in January of last year, our Office of Inspector General found a pattern of long-term sexual harassment and hostile workplace in the Colorado River District of Grand Canyon National Park. And there are a lot of things that come out as a result of that, most of which is an opportunity 
to make things right and to help people heal from the organizational trauma that's experienced, the individual trauma and the organizational trauma. And I don't think there's any way to do that but to have conversations that can be uncomfortable uh, but that can build our confidence around how to speak with one another. And women had reported that they were being harassed and discriminated against by male boatmen who were running boating trips along the Colorado River. What's your long-term view on how to change the workplace culture at Grand Canyon? You know, what we've done is we've identified kind of four priority areas. And the one that is is the one where we could probably spend the next five years focusing just on creating a uh, respectful and inclusive workforce where people can be safe, they can feel secure, and they can develop uh, the opportunity for support. That alone, I, I truly believe in focusing on something and doing it right and doing it in a way that is is changing our work products, our work processes, so that at the end of the day, our culture will evolve and will only accept behaviors that align with those kind of priority opportunities. And this seems to me like such such a difficult job, since when one thinks of workplace and, and rules and things like that, you're thinking of I'm at an office place. But you are talking about along a river or on a trail or, you know, in, in, in the wilderness. It must be very difficult to to put that in, into the national park setting. You know, in, in these situations, and I think it, it really is something that is, is I'm not going to call it unique because it's not unique, but it is mm. is isolated. And it's isolating. When you're in a job where you are away from civilization with just a few of your colleagues and you're reliant on certain people who have the control and the power of a situation, uh, there are there are those places, uh, other places we've looked at industries, oil rigs have similar situations, uh, other places where you have isolating conditions. You have to really be clear and be in touch with and have strong communication expectations. And then you have to have follow up. When something does go wrong, when something does go amiss, we can't give a pass. We can't look away. We do that in, in too many places, whether it's the NBA or the corporate boardroom where we'll say, well, somebody is just such an awesome boatman or somebody is such a high-quality mountaineer that we're going to look away from their poor human behavior in order to make sure we can keep their strong skill set in our organization. And I think that's a part of what happened with the National Park Service. High Country News led a year-long investigation into sexual harassment and misconduct throughout the National Park Service and reported it was a decades-long systemic issue. And it said one of the roadblocks to improving the culture across the park system is the process for reporting these incidents. Uh, What's a specific example of you've seen of how the Park Service is making changes on that front? Well, two things I would talk about nationally. One is that the National Park Service created our office of the ombuds. And so we actually have a third-party telephone uh, 1-800 number, a toll-free number, where any employee can call with any question, with any complaint, with any concern. And and it is a third-party organization that fields those and provides information anywhere from victim support services to here's the actual process you need to enter into to if you can't speak with your supervisor, here's some other folks that we can have you talk to, completely anonymous, completely confidential, not something our organization ever had before. The second thing is we're doing a survey. We just we just closed the survey period to try to determine what is the prevalence of harassment, of hostility, of sexual harassment across the entire Department of Interior led by the National Park Service's study design. Let's move to the topic of climate change 
former National Park Service Director John Jarvis once said climate change is, quote, fundamentally the greatest threat to the integrity of our national parks that we've ever experienced. How big of a priority is climate change for you and Grand Canyon National Park? I completely agree with Director Jarvis's statement. Climate change is is both the single greatest concern, but perhaps also our greatest opportunity. We have over 300 million visitors a year to National Park Service units, and we are, I think, among the premier educational organizations outside of, of school, formal school systems where we can reach people and talk about things like climate change, about science literacy, about history, about cultural resource protection in a way that is inspiring in a way that is uh, deeper sometimes because of the personal experience you have with your family or your friends if you if you go to a national park in that setting. So, so certainly, as we look at, I think as we look at our society today, climate change has become a part of our, our default thinking. It is dispersed throughout society now. It doesn't live just in the world of research or just in the world of science. It lives in business. It lives in the insurance industry. It lives uh, It lives at NASA. It lives in so many places that I think the Park Service's opportunity to talk to individuals on a one-on-one level about what it means in their life and for their family and how they can change the course of our future is the greatest opportunity. Now, now, President Trump has proposed significant cuts to the EPA, 31 percent in his proposed budget. It would hit particularly hard on climate change programs and research. He's also proposed deep cuts to the Interior Department, which includes the Park Service. At the same time, Trump recently donated his salary from his first several months in office to the Park Service. Are you concerned about where the Park Service fits in to this Trump administration? You know, one thing my boss always reminds me is that on January 20th, Every four years, it feels like history starts over because there's a, a, a new head of the executive branch. There's new folks in the, in the Congress. Uh, and the fact for the National Park Service are that every park that's established is established under enabling legislation that sometime in its history was passed by the Congress and signed into law by the president. And that is an extraordinarily strong place to be in a democracy. So I know as we move forward in managing Grand Canyon, we manage for the very specific reasons that Grand Canyon was established, the significance as a natural place, the significance for 12,000 years of human history. And that will always be our North Beacon and something that every employee of the National Park Service will work toward. As we go through the process of being a part of the executive branch, there will be changes to policy. There are changes to regulations. But we always keep our eye on the enabling legislation that tells us our purpose and our national significance. And I think that helps ground every employee in why we're working for the National Park Service. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News, and I'm speaking with Christine Lennertz. She's the new superintendent of Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona and the first woman to hold that position. She speaks at CU Boulder's Conference on World Affairs today. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the, the, the number of people visiting national parks, and there's a concern that people are loving the parks kind of to death. Uh, in 2016, nearly 6 million people visited Grand Canyon National Park. How do you find that balance between access and that educational component along with preservation? In 2016, the National Park Service celebrated our centennial, 100 years of a, of a National Park Service that has been uh, created to steward these public lands and to provide experience for the visitor. And as a part of that, we really did a, an intentional campaign to help people get out across America and find their parks. And it worked. Uh, it really worked. And we had so much visitation. Uh, almost every unit in the National Park Service saw increased visitation. So, of course, with that, 
that comes the downside. And for the visitors, sometimes it's the wait, it's the traffic, it's reservations, it's getting, you know, to a, to a place where you're at the gate, getting into a, a park for an hour or two. And, and from the Park Service employee perspective, we feel like it really might impact the visitor experience. What we've heard from people when we've done social science is, you know, I'm at a park. I'm not that worked up. I'm excited to be here. The important thing that we have to keep in mind for the National Park Service is our preeminent responsibility is to protect the natural and cultural resources. So we really have to keep our eye on that ball, even as we have increased wait times or uh, increased perhaps conflict between people who are viewing a grizzly bear at Yellowstone, that really our eye has to stay on the fact that keeping people on these hardscaped areas and minimizing the effects on the natural resources in parks is where we have to make sure we focus our attention. Now, there's also this concern about national parks being less relevant to younger, more diverse uh, generations. Last year, former Secretary Sally uh, Jewell said the lack of diversity among park visitors is a pretty big problem. How will you make Grand Canyon more welcoming and relevant to people of different ethnic backgrounds and ages? Well, we're lucky at Grand Canyon National Park. About 40% of our visitors are international visitors. So when you think about that, as you're walking along the trail on the South Rim, and you hear so many different languages spoken, in a lot of ways, that's not a concern for one of the big iconic national parks where we've got a lot of international tourism. A greater concern, I think, is whether or not people from the local communities feel comfortable coming to a national park. Hmm. At Golden Gate National Recreation Area in San Francisco, I, I came to Grand Canyon from Golden Gate. We had young people in neighborhoods who were no more than two or three miles from the park who had never come to the park and seen the ocean. I mean, for their entire life. 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds. And so a part of what the National Park Service is doing around the country is really reaching into some of those local communities that do have diversity. Near Grand Canyon, we're trying to reach into the communities around us where the Native American population is is um, it's a part of their aboriginal lands, but some of those youth have never visited the Colorado or never seen the Grand Canyon. That's where I think Grand Canyon National Park can really focus its attention. And you've said you want to build better relationships with American Indian tribes living in and around the park. Is that what that looks like, inviting them more into, into the actual park? I think that's a part of what it looks like. We have youth crews now where we focus our our recruitment through the local school, through Indian tribes, through tribal councils doing outreach to youth. But it also looks like what is our workforce in the future? We currently have 6.5% of our workforce that is Native American. And if you look at the surrounding counties, if you look where we live, the actual population is much larger than that. So we should be making sure that we create opportunities for tribal members not just to visit the park as a kid, but create a ladder of experiences where they come and volunteer for us. They come and work for us in high school. Maybe they come and work for us during college and even consider a career in conservation, either at the Grand Canyon or somewhere else. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Nathan. Appreciate it. Christine Lenertz is the new superintendent of Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona. She graduated from CU Boulder and speaks at the university's Conference on World Affairs today. Finally... Last weekend was a great one for University of Denver hockey, both individually. The 2017 Hobie Baker Award winner goes to Will Butcher from the University of Denver. And as a team. Ten seconds left. Anderson in front. Bodies down. Anderson bad ankle shot. The puck is wide. Four seconds. Another bank shot. It's loose. 
Baker has won the national championship for the eighth time. The Pioneers won their eighth NCAA national championship, beating Minnesota Duluth 3-2 on Saturday night in Chicago. Back with us is assistant coach David Carl. Congratulations, David. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. We heard those final seconds counting down. You're up by one, and Minnesota Duluth was threatening. What was going through your mind during that frantic finish? Uh, to be honest, the, uh, the last 10 seconds went really quick. Uh, everything else seemed to take forever and eternity to get to that point. But, uh, you know, we, we just kept preaching in the third period to our guys, protect the net front. And if you watch the video back, we had two forwards collapse to the net. They blocked the shot, shoveled the puck to the corner, and uh, we were able to clear the puck out of the zone. And um, It was frantic and just, just super proud of our guys for – for executing in a in a very uh, high pressure situation. Now the team had a spectacular performance from Jared Lukosavicius. The uh, did I get that right? Hopefully, <laughs> the sophomore Luke, Luko Savages. There Luko you Savages. go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sophomore forward scored three goals in one period, and he was named the outstanding player of the Frozen Four Championship Series. Uh, he seems to have a knack for the big moments, doesn't he? Yeah, no, he certainly uh, he chose the right time to have a hat trick. That's for sure. Um, He's been a great player for us all year, providing uh, secondary scoring for us. And uh, he took the lead role on Saturday night. And it was the uh, it was fitting his first uh, hat trick since Jim Montgomery, our head coach, scored one in nineteen ninety three uh, championship game. So now this hat trick uh, very... is it true? They throw hats into the into, onto the ice. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, okay. they throw hats onto the ice. Yeah, when you score a hat trick in hockey. Now let's go back to Friday when your defenseman and team captain Will Butcher was given the award for the best player in college hockey this season. The last winner from DU was your brother Matt. As Butcher's position coach, why was his season so outstanding? Uh, I think it's his ability to uh, to influence the game when he has the puck and when he doesn't have the puck, and uh, he can take over games with and without the puck. He's been a rock for us all year. Um, he's a captain. He provides a calming influence uh, to our team and, and kept our group focused all year on the, the ultimate prize. And uh, He would have traded that trophy in for that national championship trophy any day, and uh, he's fortunate enough that he has both of them. What about what about next year? What's coming up next? You gonna uh, kind of take a break for the next couple of days, reset, and then start again, or do you start right away? Uh, you know what? With uh, with championships, you're you know a lot of people get attention as they should individually. Now that we've had some collective uh, success, and uh, a lot of our guys will 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 start to meet with have year end meetings and and things of that nature, and we'll start to look forward to next year. But certainly, we're. We're enjoying this. We have a big event tomorrow night on campus at the Ritchie Center at Magnus Arena, uh, 6 p.m. tomorrow night uh, to celebrate the championship. And then Friday night at 6 o'clock, we have our uh, team awards banquet, which can you can purchase tickets to uh, to come to that. So Tuesday night's open free to the public. Friday night is a uh, paid ticket with hors d'oeuvres and drinks. Now, what about those seniors? Must be a big, important moment for them. Yeah, absolutely, and that's what uh, really this week's about, especially Friday night. They get an opportunity to speak to their teammates or coaches and, uh, and anyone who wants to join about their time at Denver. And uh, it's been an incredible four years for them. They've won really any every trophy they could win uh, between our regular season, our playoff championship, and now a national championship in their four years' time. And uh, just so proud of all nine of them for the contributions that they've made. Uh, to our program and, and really have uh, created a great culture of selflessness um, at our in our program. Well, David, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on.
David Carl is an assistant coach for the University of Denver men's hockey team, which won its eighth national championship Saturday night in Chicago, beating Minnesota Duluth 3-2. It was the Pioneers' first championship since 2005. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Let's go down their fight song. Have a great day.